Hey folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Pearls Almanac. Today, I have a really special guest. I'm joined by Hank Shaw. If you don't know Hank Shaw, he was a personal influence of mine as I learned how to cook foods that I didn't grow up eating. Hank's best known as a forager and a cook and has written a number of articles across various gardening, hunting, and food publications while also having released five cookbooks. In fact, one of his books, Duck, Duck, Goose, is one of my all-time favorites. In this episode, we chat about foraging, fishing, and how to deal with ecosystem destruction that limits our ability to actually access those foods. It was a really rewarding conversation to have with Hank, and I'm sure you will enjoy it. Tune in and let us know what you think. Hank, thanks so much for coming on. I'm very excited to have you on. Part of that is because you are the reason I know how to cook duck. So first, thank you for that. Your books have been phenomenal. I've I've got most, if not all of them. I use them quite a bit. So as a, as a cook, you've been really insightful and inspiring. As a forager and hunter and fisherman, you, you've done a lot of really cool stuff that excites me. And I've enjoyed following you a number of years now. So first, thank you for coming on. Yeah, anytime. I'm glad we could finally make it happen. We've been going round and round for a few months now. Yeah, we've, we've been talking online for a few years at least, and then I finally had an excuse to reach out to you. So I was like, all right, we got to do this. And uh, it took a little while, but we got there. You've had a lot of stuff going on in your life. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm generally terrible about scheduling things. So between the two of us, it took about six months, but we got there. Yeah, and that's all that are. matters. I know you were a journalist before you kind of got into cooking. So kind of what? Kind of ish. Yeah. So I was a chef, kind of a line cook and a sous chef before I was a journalist. And then I was a journalist for quite a long time. And then I went back to the kitchen. So it's so journalism was sort of a very long interregnum. Mm. So like the cooking was something you did, but I'm, I'm assuming as a line cook, you weren't thinking this is my career. Whereas I'm sure when you got into journalism, you're like, I hope this is my career. And then they kind of come together. Exactly. Yeah. You've been on the West Coast for a long time, but you are originally from the East Coast, right? And now I'm in the middle. Yeah, and and now you're in the middle. <laughs> and actually, I think you're from pretty close to where I am out in eastern Massachusetts. So we weren't too far away. You know some of the same problems that I have with our uh, very safe and clean public resources for <laughs> fishing and all that good stuff. You know all about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's heartbreaking. You catch fish and you're, if it's a trout and you can eat it, it's because it was, it's a, you know, from a farm, basically. A put and take. Uh, and, yeah. <laughs> and like, that just defeats the point to me. Like, it takes the spirit out of it for me. I don't know if you agree with me on that, but it, it's, just, it's kind of heartbreaking. I do. I, you know, it's better to fix the habitat than to put like a wholly artificial fish into the system. Yeah. And just like pretend that it's not the case that you, you've taken this basically domesticated fish, shoved it in a pond, it eats whatever it sees, and then you, you caught a fish. Congratulations. So yeah, you're, you're familiar with the challenges on this coast, but you've also gotten to see how things are done in a lot of different ways, which is really cool. One of the things I, I heard you talking about is that you don't ever really buy meat, at least as of the interview that I heard with you, that you hadn't done it in like a few years or mm -hmm. barely in a few years. And uh, that's a really interesting idea and something that I've tried to do personally. And that's raising chickens, turkeys, ducks, guinea fowl, sheep, fishing, you know, all these different things. And like it becomes really apparent really quickly how much meat you actually eat when you start doing that. Like you, you butcher you know, 30 or 40 chickens and you're like, oh, that's a lot of chicken. And then like a month and a half later, you're like, wow, that wasn't a lot of chicken. <laughs> well, you see, I actually found the opposite. 
I'm, I'm guessing you probably were eating a lot less, and I think you'd try to. So when I started to set out to do this in 2004, I was very daunted by the idea of, of trying to come up with a couple hundred pounds of meat for a year. You know, so I actually did like spreadsheets and like, I need this many dogs and I need like two deer, da 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 da. And it just very, very quickly became obvious that a deer or two, the duck hunting where I lived in Sacramento was amazing. So the ability to shoot dozens of, of ducks and geese a year was pretty apparent. You know, rabbits were pretty plentiful back then. And there's just the, the ability to do that. Plus fishing, because I've I've been a good fisherman, you know, for many decades, and so it became like I have to stop rather than I'm I'm having a hard time finding meat, you know. And I just there was lots of cases where I would decide, yeah, no, I'm just not going to go hunting because I don't need the meat. Oh, that's awesome! I'm so jealous. <laughs> I, I, I don't get to hunt very often because my I have kids and it's just chaos. So I, I do think hunting probably is really good at supplementing. All you need to do is really bag a couple good deer and you're, you've done a lot of damage to that, that meat that you need to eat. Oh, yeah. But, you know, if you're going through chickens and guinea fowl at a couple pounds a piece, suddenly, yeah, like I said, it, it doesn't take too long, especially when you have kids that don't like to eat. <laughs> they only want the very simple, clean meat. Ah. You know, that, that comes with a whole other bag of issues. Another thing, you, you just brought up the fact that you, you hunt quite a bit of different stuff, a lot of diversity. Uh, you've also talked about the fact that you're an adult onset hunter, and I think that's something that is much more prevalent today than it's probably ever been in history. Uh, I think this is very much like the first time in history where there's like a bunch of people that are interested in hunting and they didn't grow up with it because I think the previous generation is probably the first generation that didn't pass that down as like a cultural practice, right? I think it raises some really interesting questions about like how we think about this idea of like passing down knowledge, ancestral knowledge. And um, it speaks to the fact that we just, we aren't very closely connected to our food in a way that clearly from the growth and interest in growing and hunting and these types of things, like speaks to something that people are, feel like they're missing, right? Very much so. For people that are just kind of dipping their toes in the water, you know, what were some of the things that you you went through and uh, experienced as an onset adult hunter that you think is, I guess, like helpful or maybe not what you thought it would be? Because um, I, I I've gone through the same thing, so I'm I'm really interested to hear uh, what your experiences were. I think um, there's a lot of sort of jarring moments when you start hunting that are. Um, or at least should be jarring that do not happen with people who are fishing because in almost every culture on earth with the notable exception of the Pacific islands, fish are other and mammals and birds are us. So at a very deep cultural level, the deer, the squirrel, the rabbit, even the pheasant uh, or the duck is us where fish or a trout is just is other it's not us so part of it has to do with the, the warm-blooded versus not warm-blooded and part of it has to do with you know arms and legs and things like that the feet versus meat yeah and so i think you have to address that and some people never get it past it and and that's fine because as long as there have been humans or have been humans who don't hunt they just do other things and it's a very heavy deal. I mean, there is, there is no such thing as catch and release hunting. 
Uh, I mean, yeah. So you could, in theory, shoot with like tranquilizer darts or some shit like that. But like, <laughs> that, but, that would be kind of fun, though. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I mean, you you take the shot, and the animal, in theory, dies, and that's it. And it's you just did that, and it's a big deal. So then you have a you have to grapple with that, and then you have to grapple with how do I open this package? You know, skinning things and gutting things and dealing with the the blood and the smells and the other things. That's very literally visceral, and it's again. I know many people who struggle with that because you see your own mortality and you see that the fact that we're all essentially large bags of water and flesh because we're all built the same. And once you start doing this, you realize that the deer, even the birds, and especially, you know, squirrels, for example, because squirrels even have collarbones and nothing else we hunt in North America has a collarbone except for a squirrel. So you've got anatomical similarities to your own self that are unavoidable and are obvious that make you notice and how you deal with that is up to you. And, and it's, it can very often stop somebody in their tracks and, and say, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. I fully relate. I know. I mean, I think everyone kind of remembers the first time they've taken an animal's life um, because it is heavy and it should be heavy. We should own it, own all the feelings that come along with it. Right. And that, and that can be really difficult. And I think part of the difficulty, at least from my perspective, is that we don't have a society that fully grapples with that to like fall back on. There's no safety net for that feeling, right? You do it and you feel vulnerable and alone because there isn't a community of people that you can go home. You know, for example, I, my parents didn't hunt. My dad never hunted. I can't go talk to him about like what that experience felt like. And there was no cultural norms around it, right? I mean, there are, just not in your in your particular circle. I mean, yeah, yeah. Even like culturally in the United States, as like a a commonality. Um, I would disagree with that. I think you, if you travel more in rural circles, um, you know, livestock farmers and hunters in great swaths of the United States, everybody you talk to will have had that experience. And and there is actually a community in in lots of places in the United States, but it's just not everywhere in the United States. Yeah. I mean, I, I would only push back and say that like population wise, you know, rural communities are far away by urban and suburban communities, which don't have those same cultural values. And I think that weighs into how you know you go through that process. You if you don't come from a hunting community and you kill your first animal, and you have this moment of looking at it and kind of wondering for a second, like, what am I doing here? Like, I could just go to the grocery store. I don't need to kill that animal. Mm -hmm. And then you, you have to grapple with that reality of the consequences of the way you live, right? And again, that can be really heavy and difficult, especially that first time. Yes. Where you fully own that, that emotion that you've never felt before because you've never killed anything before. It's it's honestly it's difficult, but it's honestly really good because I think it reminds us of the sanctity of the way we live, or that we are living, and that we have these relations with other animals for good or for better or worse, right? That we can relate to them and their ability to exist on the earth the same way we do. To your point, that that we are not that much different. Mm -hmm. For me, as somebody that grew up around 
farming at least the idea of like butchering a chicken or like a turkey hunting turkey was like very like oh it's just a bird if i shoot it i can i can break it down in like a 10 minutes tops but then i think to to your point when you start dealing with other animals that are similar to us a little bit more similar in terms of like structural body it, it gets a little bit more emotionally vested so could you talk through a little bit about like kind of how you've evolved uh, in your relationship with hunting and what that's kind of looked like for you? It is an interesting question because you do evolve and you do anything enough times and it becomes, if not rote, it becomes just part of what the fabric of what you created as yourself. So I've been doing this for 22 years and hunting and uh, I mean, I've been fishing for my whole life but I've been, I've been hunting for 22 years. And in those, in that time, I've shot a lot of deer and I've shot hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of birds. It's, you know, you, you do anything that many times. And in many cases, it requires something out of the ordinary to shake you out of the routine. So I just got done with a deer hunt in Oklahoma that was more of a harvest than a hunt. So we were hunting on a ground lines and the deer came really close and they were unaware and they're really close. And I was not, I wasn't hunting for horns this year. So I was specifically down there to hunt on this ranch because they needed some does uh, shot and some spike bucks and stuff like that. So it was kind of a cull hunt. So there was, you weren't really supposed to be picky. So the first hunt lasted 28 minutes. Oh, Jesus. And, and I shot two does, you know, they, the act of that was really kind of weird and, and, and remarkable in, in its own way in the sense that I've become such a good shot and this shot opportunity was so such a layup, like a 20-yard shot that I headshot all the deer. And that's not normally a shot that most people do. Normally you shoot what's called the boiler room, which is just behind the front leg and, and the heart and lung area because it's a much more it's a bigger area where your shot will be lethal. It also happens to damage me. So if you're good, you, you head shoot the animal because the animal a dies instantaneously and B you have no meat loss, but it's a, it's, it's a tricky shot. And this is the first time I was like, yeah, I'm going to take the shot. And I didn't even think twice about it because I knew I could do it 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, I'd be nervous about that shot but you do it over and over and over and over again. And, you know, you practice the range and you, and you take other kinds of shots. You're like, no, this is, this is it. This is you're going to do it. And so <laughs> in 28 minutes, you know, two deer, I shot two deer and that was it, you know? And then the next morning I had to wait maybe an extra hour or so in the morning, but you know, spike buck came along and I shot that spike buck. So it's like, yeah, there it was, you know? And, and, I absolutely, I actually felt the the feelings kind of more in the aftermath than it was in the actual hunt because there's a certain muscle memory that occurs when you do something for a long time, then you just get good at it, whether it's cutting onions or, or shooting a rifle or a shotgun or doing anything. It's, you know, you get used to it and then you have to have some external stimulus to knock you out of that routine. Yeah. I, I have to imagine that must, it must have almost felt a little surreal because of the fact that 
I don't, I think when you go and do something like hunting, there's that expectation of I'm going to be out. It's going to take, you know, some, some skill mm -hmm. in terms of tracking, in terms of waiting. It's almost like this dance, right? And you kind of just went right to the end. There was no kind of build up to it. And I, I could see how that could be really jarring in a lot of ways. It was. I mean, I was grateful for the meat and I had chosen to shoot younger deer because A, the rancher needed them off the ground. And then B, um, from a cook's perspective, they're very different in terms of the, the, you know, the culinary aspects of a younger deer versus an older deer. So it, it allowed me to do some things that I wouldn't normally do. But it was like, yeah, okay, here we are. It's basically grocery shopping. And yeah. And it's, and I've had other hunts where, you know, you hunt eight days and you see one deer maybe. So it, it kind of all balances out in the end, but it's, it's still weird when it's feels too easy. Yeah. You go in, uh, it's like pushing a door they expect is going to be really heavy and it's really light. It's got, you know, really yeah. good springs on it and it just kind of throws you off a little bit. You're like, all right. Like, like when we've cool. all picked something up, like we've like, okay, this is going to yeah. weigh 20 pounds. And you're like, you get your body's ready to pick up 20 pounds and it's one pound. And so yeah, like, exactly. you know, like whoosh, oh, there it is. <laughs> yeah. Didn't expect that. That's really interesting. Uh, it does speak to the fact though, that you can hunt for a long time and still go through a lot of these first time experiences. Oh, I learn things every year. Yeah. And that in that process, we can still kind of retain some of that humility and honor to the process because we, we're still in a lot of different ways processing what it feels like to go through these emotions and to own the the actions that we're doing right where we're going through and we're we're harvesting animals to eat and that's good and fine and honorable but doing it different ways comes with different emotional baggage for different reasons mm -hmm. hey we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com on our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Pearls website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorpearls.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into The Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. I want to transition a little bit to fish because I love fishing and I never get to eat what I catch because I live surrounded by a bunch of polluted lakes and I can do saltwater fishing, but that's about it, which there's nothing wrong with, but I'm just, I, I always liked freshwater fishing more. I don't know why. Interesting. I, I grew up on the salt. So I'm, my, uh, my mom is from Ipswich and, yep. and my sister's from Gloucester. And, and so we come by saltwater fishing, honestly. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm, the, I'm on the other side of Boston. But I grew up around Providence, so like it was just super polluted, you know, totally useless. And even like getting to the ocean, there's no easy way. So we would go like a couple times a year as a kid. But you know, it was like you travel out to the canal, you're there for four hours, and then you go home, and you're like, this was a pain in the ass to go fishing. <laughs> like as like a ten year old or a twelve year old, like you didn't really didn't really appreciate it. But yeah, so like I love to to do freshwater fishing and. 
it breaks my heart, like how terribly polluted the lands are here and the waters are here. I'm sure you're familiar with like the Taunton River, which recently um, tested 10,000 times over the limit on the PFAs, which oh, is perfect. just like, yeah, 10,000. <laughs> I was like, there should never be any chemical that's 10,000 over the limit. To get to that point and for it to almost not even be like news breaking is just, <laughs> God damn it, where did we go wrong? You know what I mean? But what's interesting about the, the Taunton River, they have these snakeheads and uh, they're pretty invasive around here, I guess. Oh, yeah. Everyone that I know, there's there's a lot of Portuguese people, as I'm sure you know, and a lot of them will cook them. And like, if you're not Portuguese, it's always been like, what are you doing with those fish? They're trash fish, just kind of like bluefish fishing out in the ocean. But this idea of like eating and harvesting invasives, especially invasives that don't have any like culinary appeal, I think it's like this really interesting process. And it's something you've dipped your toes into quite a bit. I, for, that's the first I've ever heard of anybody saying that a snake has a trash fish. Like you go, really? you go south of Massachusetts, I guess, and like literally everybody wants to eat snake heads. Really? That's why they're there. So they put them in the system because they're delicious. Oh, really? I, yeah, I've I always mean, heard that they were trash fish, but that could also be because- It's all cultural. Exactly. Like it could be just because it was like, oh, this fish is just like taken over this area. So it must be garbage kind of thing. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's that kind of the tragedy of the comments. I mean, people feel the same way about snow geese. Like, oh, so geese must not be good because there's bajillions of them. And like, oh, no, they're actually quite good. And yes, there are bajillions of them. But but there's that snakeheads the same way. I mean, they were they were put into the systems you know, around the Potomac is where they first showed up. And because they're A, great to fish for because they're ferocious and B, they're delicious. And everybody I know who fishes for snakeheads loves eating snakeheads. Yeah. That's the first I've ever heard of somebody saying that, oh, that is a trash fish. So, I I basically, anyone that I know that fishes and eats freshwater fish, I'm super suspicious of their taste anyway, just because it seems like a terrible idea given the pollution around here. But um, I don't know. I guess it never occurred. Like, I, that makes sense, though, because like catfish kind of has the same quality here, where in the Northeast, catfish. Yeah, because you're in the North. Yeah. Whereas in the South, like where my uncle lives, like down in the Carolinas, it's like a delicacy. Everybody eats catfish. It's a Mason-Dixon line thing. So yeah. as soon as you get to the Mason-Dixon line, more or less, on south, everyone eats catfish. If you get north of the Mason-Dixon line, only those other people eat catfish. And it's, it's I mean, it's basically cultural racism. And it's that's what it is. It's like, you know, oh, only black people eat catfish if you're in, like, mm-hmm. Michigan or whatever. And, you know, obviously there's exceptions to that. But but in general, they're they're not considered food fit to eat. In the north, which it's the same fish that lives in the south, and they're fantastic, and I eat them any chance I get. In yeah, fact, catfish. I was very disappointed that I it was only catch and release catfishing in Manitoba that when I fish for gigantic channel cats, and I'm like, oh my god, these are going to be amazing! I'm like, oh, we got to tur- we got to release them. <laughs> Why was that? Uh, it was just the law of, the, of that particular river. Oh, that's interesting. I've never heard of there being limits on catfish. Oh, there's lots of limits on catfish in the South because people eat them. Well, that makes sense. Um, it just it seems so strange because around here, it's just the opposite. Uh, and it, it's what I really like about like this idea of like local food through like fishing is like is this like very localized culture around it, right? Where mm-hmm. because of the local demand on whatever it might be, systems get developed to to work around that and to keep things kind of in check. And um, retain some of that cultural identity, right? Like, I think given the way our food system is otherwise, the idea of like having this kind of unique 
hey, we're we live in this part of the country. This is a fish we eat. This is a, a plant we eat. This is a an animal we hunt uh, that has cultural relevance. Mm-hmm. It's so so rare in twenty twenty three for it to still exist. And uh, despite every everything's attempt to kind of monopolize every part of our lives, that's one that's still kind of held on a little bit. Yeah, it's all over the country. I mean, I I travel a lot, and and those things exist everywhere, and they exist at the margins, but they're very, very real and they're not going anywhere. So, I mean, there's traditions of, of ciscos and whitefish up in the north, uh, which are a very bony fish that is still highly sought after for smoking. There's, you know, there's the prickly pear harvest in the southwest. There's, you know, some places people love eating javelina. Some places people think they're garbage and, and, there i can i could go on for an hour and a half about a particular wild thing that is in that is important for a culture in any given region state or 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 group of people that isn't part of the mainstream but is still very widespread and very important to those people who are who are attached to it and it exists all over the united states and canada I'll be really interested to kind of see how that plays out with like the whole like eat local movement, because those haven't really kind of merged together in any meaningful way yet. You're starting to see it with kind of like the like harvesting of ramps and things like that. But I think it, it does kind of highlight the way like craft food, craft beer, all these will kind of coalesce to try to, again, recreate the, the local regional flavor that mm-hmm. we lost, I think, a lot in the, the mid 20th century. Yeah, I mean, there's some really interesting stuff. So I have many cookbooks, and and if you look at cookbooks from the Depression and then in the 20s, uh, especially rural cookbooks, you'll see a, a, a big, big use of wild foods in those in those books. And it kind of disappears in World War II, and it definitely disappears after World War II because of you know the just the nation changed after that. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate. Things seem to unravel pretty quickly after World War II for. A lot of our local identity for a number of reasons. But this idea, I think, of like how we frame our identity through local food and the way we harvest it, the way we access it, and then how that's going to play into how we deal with like climate change and the way climate change changes what those places look like, you know, through invasives and plants changing their regions just because of temperatures changing, uh, Mm -hmm. weather patterns changing, so on. I'm kind of curious about kind of how you see the role of folks like yourself, like us, that spend a lot of time, I guess you could call us like advocates for local food, local wild food, uh, and the way we relate to the landscape around us. Kind of how how all that's going to blend together into, I guess, like a, a more, hopefully, more ethical, more respectful, more relative food system. Sorry if that was a little meandering. Well, I mean, I, I mean, as climate changes, it's just everything's just going to shift north. So, one example, if you want to take the southern part of the United States, uh, you're starting to see iguanas do pretty well in South Florida, and in the Keys and in South Florida, and and because they're getting fewer and fewer even light freezes, which these lizards can't really handle. But you know, like iguanas are an invasive species in the United States, and they happen to be delicious. You know they're eating all over Mexico and Central America, they're and they're fun to shoot. Right? <laughs> like, like they're, it's like you you shoot them with air guns out of trees and such, and and they're delicious. So that's a thing that was really kind of exclusive to farther south. That because things have gotten warmer, 
has now reached the United States. Another example would be the Eurasian collar dove. So the Eurasian collar dove is also a thing that started in Florida in the 70s. I think it could have been 60s, but I think it's 70s. And that particular bird, it's a large dove with a black kind of collar on the back of its on the back of its neck. And it's lighter in color than a morning dove, and it doesn't seem to mind cold. It is now in all 48 of the lower 48 states. And it is non-native, it's invasive. There's no seasons and bag limits on them. You can shoot them whenever you want. And they're delicious because they taste just like doves. And to the point where it's hilarious and that there are several states where it is illegal to hunt morning doves, which are native, but yet you can you can hunt this Eurasian collar dove. So, but that that bird's advance is specifically due to climate change. You also have cases of waterfowl, what's called short stopping. So historically, you'd have millions of waterfowl spend their winters in the Gulf or in South Texas, and they don't need to go that far anymore. So they don't. So they hang out in Missouri or in Oklahoma, and they spend the winter there because it's perfectly fine. And to the point where you're seeing hunting outfitters pick up sticks from South South Texas and they're moving their operations north because that's where the birds are. So that's just going to happen. It's just the way it is. What is our responsibility around, like, how, how do we make things like invasive species more appealing, these these trash animals? Or it's I, I feel like it's usually fish or um, pigs or... Those are probably the two big ones. Well, Texans are doing a pretty good job with pigs. Um, yeah, they're, they're working on it, that's for sure. They've changed laws where um, they've made it a little bit easier for the consumer to, to eat wild hogs because they're so invasive. So that's they're adjusting in that way, and that's that's been helpful. You know, you'll you'll find instances where the fish and wildlife agencies will be, oh, there's no limit on next fish because it's not native. And they'll encourage it. So a good example uh, that's going on right now, and I don't know that this is, um, I don't know that there's no limit on them, but porgies is a good example. So porgies are a mainstay of the mid-Atlantic states from about Delaware all the way up to really the southern part of, of Rhode Island, but they'd never gotten around the Cape and now they're around the Cape. And and so that they're on the other side now. And so Massachusetts is trying to figure out what to do with porgies. And, and so they have some limits already because you could fish them south of the, the canal on the, on the Cape, but now they're north of the canal. And, and so that's changing. Tatog are, getting, are coming farther north. So you're getting you know, green crabs is another example. I mean, green crabs have been around forever, um, for a long, long time, longer than I've been alive. And they're just getting more and more uh, pervasive in the last 20 years. So people are figuring out what to do with them. In the Midwest, people are figuring out what to do with the invasive carp. And it's it's just a process, you know? I mean, the snakehead became a really easy sell because they're delicious. And the 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 grass carp or whatever, uh, the whatever it is, the jumping carp, I can't remember which exactly species it is, but the carp, that carp in the Midwest, it's a little bit of a tougher sell. They're not as good, and it's got the rib issue, right? Yeah, I mean, so do snakeheads. But you know, if you can if you can fillet a northern, you can fillet either of those. And then those big carp get so big, you can just chunk out meat that's boneless, and it's it's really awesome smoked. But yeah, I mean, it's it's people are adapting to the new thing. Another example would be uh, this is an older example, but fennel. 
Uh, wild fennel is is an invasive, non-native species all over California. It's everywhere, and people have just decided to make an industry out of it. <laughs> so they, you know, they make, you know, you can buy dried wild fennel. You could buy dried file, you know, dried wild fennel seeds. You can dry wild wild fennel pollen and all that kind of stuff. And so, I mean, if they're if you can figure out a way to make it attractive people people will make an industry out of it and that actually ends up putting the thing under pretty significant control because there's now people whose business it is to harvest that thing so do you think the laws are the the primary vector to make these changes or do you think or do you think it's more important i guess that there's a, a cultural narrative around it or a cultural component to it whether it's considering the food uh, a certain you know reflective of a certain lifestyle or uh, any other kind of like means to get people to uh, to appreciate it for what it is, you know, change that narrative around the the way we kind of relate to those things. So, like, how do we get it from being considered the trash thing to something that people want to consume? I think in culture and laws both are lagging indicators. The the things that change are early adopters and innovators, and and it can be people like you and me. It can be people. Who are much more famous than you and I are, who you know champion X or Y. So if you had, you know, Emerald Lagasse, you know, featuring Snakehead on all his menus or something like that, that would be noticeable and people would write about it and people would want to try it. So one of the things that I have been trying to do over the last almost 20 years now is to provide people with the information they need and the recipes they need to take that trust fall. So a, a good example is just today, uh, I did a new liver recipe for, for some of these younger deer that I shot. And I personally don't love liver. Grind it meatballs and sausages and things like that, but or maybe a pate. But I, you know, a slab of liver, like liver and onions, to me has always been meh. So I worked very hard to make this particular thing taste good to anybody, including me, because I'm not really a liver lover. And it's people like that who are like, look, try this, and you can trust me because you tried 17 of my other recipes and I've never let you down. So try this thing that might be uncomfortable for you. And they do, and then they become evangelists to their own circle of friends. Like, no, you got to try these kidneys because Hank's devil kidneys recipe is the bomb uh, or something like that. Yeah. And then that circle of, so then at deer camp next year and everybody keeps kidneys and they make that specific recipe and so on and so forth. And, and so that's really how that usually works is it's, it's kind of word of mouth for sure, but it's word of mouth through trusted individuals, whether it's somebody that you don't necessarily know, but read about, which would be me or your buddy at deer camp who maybe did my recipe and is convinced and, and convinces you. So that's how that probably that I guarantee you, that's how that shifted was, was uh, with snakeheads because of the Potomac region, everyone was freaking out about them. And then it very quickly determined that a, they're really fun to catch and B they're delicious. Everyone was like, yeah, man, let's go catch some snakeheads. <laughs> and it was just, that was it. And now if you look in that region, in the Virginia Potomac region, they're not really a problem. Meaning they're they're non-native, but they're, they've been kept in check by any number of things, not the least of which is fishing pressure. Yeah, that's, you know, it is cool when it works out that way. Mm-hmm. 
Sometimes it doesn't, like those cane toads in Australia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There, you know, for everyone like that, uh, there's there's a few that do not go out that well. Well, like zebra mussels. Zebra mussels is a good example. I was literally just about to bring them up. And so that's ask a great if example of um, they're too small to eat, but they filter so much crap out of the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes have, have become very, very clean, and it has supported uh, an explosion of walleye and perch. And there's this invasive goby too that that showed up in somebody's ballast. And that, I know it's in Lake Erie. I can't remember which other lakes it's in, but this weird ass goby fish. And the native fish, the perch and the walleye, love eating them. So between the cleaner water from the zebra mussels and this goby fish, these are the good old days for especially walleye in in a place like Lake Erie. Uh, perch have gone up and down, but there are cases where oh, this is a huge issue, and it is because zebra mussels are still actually a problem, but it's not an unmitigated problem. There, um, there have been a few positive effects of their presence in the Great Lakes. And do you want to put them in your own lake? No, you don't, because if you don't have that right system, it's just not going to, it's going to be bad. Yeah. <laughs> but, and there have been a couple of silver linings, I guess is probably the best way to put it in, in yeah. the Great Lakes system. That's good. There's not very many wins with invasives. So when you get them, you got to really cherish them. Oh yeah. Like cheatgrass <laughs> in the West, you know, like that's, yeah. that's a pretty, pretty nasty fight. That's not one yet. Yeah. We've got the Japanese knotweed everywhere here. At least you can eat that. I still don't like it. I've tried cooking it multiple ways. I just, I don't like it. <laughs> I I want to so badly. I just don't. Um, but speaking of, uh, in, well, actually not speaking of, but in, in contrast to the invasives, you've actually gotten to work with some more rare native, um, I'll call them plants. Uh, you know, we we talked before we started recording about beech nuts, which is mm-hmm. supposedly delicious. I've never they been are. able to get my hands on them, uh, but you have. So I'm I'm curious a, bit, a little bit about your thoughts about, you know, what what kind of potential they have in terms of actually being a food source or something that is more integrated into like foraging community and foraging culture. The problem with beech nuts is they're a massive pain in the ass to shell. So there's a great German expression which translates to everyone likes picking nuts. No one likes cracking them. And <laughs> it's, it's basically you use that expression for what you, what everyone is thinking right now, because everybody is out there is thinking like, Oh yeah, cracking nuts sucks. And it's the hard, dirty work that nobody wants to do. Mm. Um, I mean, there's a reason why nuts present a very prominent role in holiday cooking because a, the, their season is immediately prior to the holidays but it's also, they are, they represent effort. So think about black walnuts or think about beech nuts or, or pinions or really almost any nut. Like this is why the pecan, like the pecan is so popular because I mean, before it was really called the pecan, it was the soft shell hickory, which is by far the easiest nut to crack. And comes out whole. Yeah. And it comes out whole. I mean, you can get butternuts whole too, but they're a bit harder to crack. And so the process of breaking the the getting the nut meat out of the shell is never easy, and and so with beech nuts, it's especially difficult, and they're very small. So it's probably the smallest of the nuts that we that we eat in North America. Uh, the hazelnuts are wild hazelnuts, are a little bit bigger, and pinion pines are a little smaller, but they're not that hard to crack. So you've got all of these smaller nuts that 
do they represent something delicious? Yes, they do. But it's 100% a labor of love in the sense that you can gather, and I have, you know, a gallon Ziploc full of beech nuts. And first of all, a third of them are going to be rot. So you do that float test, and if they float, they're no good. And then then you got to crack through them all after you roast them. And so after you roast, because you can't eat beech nuts raw. They're they're mildly toxic raw. So then you got to crack them. And it's this weird little triangular kind of thing. They look like a weird chestnut burr, yeah. Oh, it just sucks. And, but, you know, they taste good. So I've, I've used them for fancy dinners, and, but it's not something I'm going to make a habit of. Whereas, yeah. you know, butternuts, yes. Um, pinions for sure. And even pinions. The thing about, there's two kinds of pinions. There's there's both Pinus edulis and Pinus monophylla. So all pine nuts are edible, you should know, but not all pines create nuts that are worth bothering with. The vast majority of pine species east of the Great Plains have nuts that are insignificant to humans. So that's why if you want pine nuts and you're in the East, you grow an Italian stone pine. You just buy a plant and then just wait 10 years. (laughs) And and eventually you're going to get them and they're great, but you know, it's usually do it for your kids. But in the West, you've got three major pine, well, four sugar pines, bull pines, which is Pinus sabiniana. That's a California pine only. And then the two pinions, which are the longleaf pinion, which is sort of Nevada and Utah and that area. That's the monophylla. And then you've got Pinus edulis, which would be southern Utah and Arizona and New Mexico and a little Colorado too. And they're fun to pick. I mean, I can pick buckets and buckets and buckets of them. But again, you got that float test issue. And then there's a very thin shell around each one. This is the thing. Everybody out there, like if you you know what a pine nut looks like, right? But that's a shelled pine nut. Somebody had to shell that. Mm. And there is no pine nut sheller. So th- this is, it's, it's kind of a lie, but it's, it's effectively true in the sense that, yes, there is a pine nut sheller that costs five grand. So... <laughs> If you really want to get into pine nuts, yeah, you can drop five grand and get a pine nut sheller that works. That's the cheapest one, by the way. And otherwise, you basically put your pine nuts in between two terry cloth towels and roll a rolling pin over them to crack them. And then then you just sit there while watching football or whatever, crack them all by hand. And it can take you, it can take you an hour to get two cups of nuts. So yeah, this tough. is one of those deals where like you better like them and don't drop any because you're going to pick it up off the floor and you're going to put it in your whatever it is that you're cooking because you've worked hard for that nut. <laughs> and how do, how do the flavors change? Uh, you know, obviously I think most people have had pine nuts uh, or like European Asian pine nuts, you know, depending mm-hmm. where they're getting them. Um, is it pretty similar flavor for the West Coast pines or is it a it's little bit different? similar, but they're richer. Um, and the other cool thing about American pine nuts is you will never get pine mouth. So there's a thing called pine mouth, which either you're, if you're listening to this, you either have had it or you know somebody who's had it. It's they've, they've eaten pine nuts and they've gotten a metallic taste in their mouth that it lasts for days. And I know this is going to shock you, but sometimes the Chinese adulterate foods that they export to other countries. <laughs> <laughs> I know, crazy, right? So sometimes the China, it's a 95%, maybe more than that of the pine nuts that we eat in the United States are all from China. There's a tiny Italian pine nut market that, you know, you really have to read the fine print because even like 
some of the things that are shipped from Italy, they're really Chinese nuts. So the Italian stone pine will not give you pine mouth. They're also way more expensive. Yeah. And you can't even buy American pine nuts on the market. Like you just, yeah. you can buy them in the shell, but then you got to shell them. And who's, who wants to do that except for crazy people like me? So it's pretty much always going to be this, it's a, the, these Chinese nuts, which are the Korean, the Korean pine. So the Korean pine is the one that you want. And that's about, you know, the vast majority of the Chinese nuts that you're going to get are from this particular tree. Yeah. However, there's another tree it's like Siberia or Manchuria or somewhere. And it's, it's, the nuts look the same, but they're shitty. They give you pine mouth. <laughs> so, so, but they're, they're a hell of a lot cheaper, right? So because yeah. nobody wants to eat them. And so every now and again, they get adulterated into your bag of regular pine nuts and it gives you pine mouth and that makes you no longer eat pine nuts because it's pretty, pretty wretched and you don't want it. Yeah. That, that checks out. I've, if you go online on plant, stores you'll see sometimes they'll have like cold hardy pine nut tree and you're like okay like what makes this one genetically different and that is probably it they're probably selling the same plants uh or different plants the the manchurian or whatever the uh, one i can't yeah, remember the yeah, exact other called, one is. yeah but the italian stone pine will not steer you wrong and then and i can tell you that the american pines are they're very cold hardy i mean <laughs> you mean the west places, coast ones yeah yeah some of the places that I pick, um, they get to zero in the wintertime. Oh, wow. Wouldn't feel comfortable bringing them over the Rockies, but uh, it's good to know in, in a pinch. Yeah, that's interesting. How I, I didn't ask. Uh, what about the beech nut? What, what's the flavor on that? They're sweet. I, they're hard to describe. They're a little bit, they're softish. So it's a little soft like a walnut. It has a little bit of a sweet tinge. Like, like a chestnut a, or? No, not that sweet, but more like a macadamia. Okay. Yeah, I would put them in the same bucket as macadamias. Okay. Like a small macadamia. Yeah, I like them. You can't go wrong with a macadamia nut. That's cool. They're like 100% fat macadamia <laughs> nuts. <laughs> yeah, that's why they taste good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what's interesting is back in the mid-20th century, there were people trying to breed beech nuts or beech trees for improved nuts. Mm. But I don't think it ever really got off the ground because they take so long to get to mast. And I think the it just fizzled out pretty quickly because who yeah, wants how to spend... big are you going to get them, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, like exactly. You could double the size and they're still going to be smaller than an almond. Yeah, exactly. Like that, there's only so much you can do as much. But like, I think what's really interesting about that is that it speaks to the flavor profile and like yes. that, that there's that kind of dedication to that flavor that people are like, you know what I got to do with the rest of my life? I need to plant beech trees and I need to pick the best nuts to grow the next generation. Well, I mean, we could, uh, we could go on and on about American groundnuts too. So yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of great American plants that there's been some work done. And then even like historically, you can look at like evening primrose, Pr evening primrose, like so many plants in the United States that used to be available for horticulture are no longer available because people stopped managing them. But mm -hmm. like even things that we think of as weeds, like evening primrose, people were growing it for the root and they mm -hmm. were growing improved varieties and like if you told somebody that today they're like you mean that weed over there that annoys me because yeah. <laughs> every time i cut it down it comes back like yeah they they were improving that there's so many stories like that from beach plums to like i said evening primrose which i think is like the pinnacle of that of that like really that plant chicory um, chicory yeah i mean the list goes on and on 
it's heartbreaking to think about how much genetic resources have been lost because those breeding projects got lost. Horticultural programs kind of whittled down what their researches were. Independent growers, you know, shut up shop and what was there got turned into a suburb. So you can't even find the plants anymore. I mean, it's just, it's really heartbreaking once you start to realize what we've lost. Yeah. And yet then you're going to find like somebody somewhere has been doing it the whole time. Like, yeah, and then, there's always one someplace. You just mm-hmm. got to find them. A fun example of that is the giant Canada goose. So they thought the giant Canada goose was extinct because it, it, it's a non-migratory, big-ass Canada goose that lives only around the Great Lakes. And then they found some dude. I think he was like around Buffalo, like as a farmer, right? And he had like they just showed up one day and then they stayed. So he like bred them. You know, they just, he just like, they were on his farm for like a generation. And then some biologists like, holy shit, those are the giant candidates. Like, oh yeah, they are really big. And, and so like there they were, they weren't extinct anymore. They're just living on this dude's farm in Western New York. So that's like when people find these American chestnuts, they're like, oh, that thing. Like, yeah, that, that tree that is just like healthy that nobody knew about like that, yeah. that little thing. Uh, and you're just like, how, how did this last this long? And just like, but when those, those things happen, it's like a little, little sign that there is hope for all of us. True. <laughs> Nature finds a way. Yeah, it does. Uh, you figure on the scale of this continent with the amount of land that is available somewhere, something has been stored for everything that we think we've lost. Probably, yeah. Or at least I tell myself that because otherwise it is pretty heartbreaking. So I know you're working on a new cookbook. I don't know if you want to talk about that at all. It's not imminent. It's it's a represents a pretty significant departure from what I'm known for. For the last three years, I've been not only spending a lot of time in Mexico, but and learning Spanish. But I've been working on really a a very very deep dive into the foods of northern Mexico. And the reason why it attracted me in the first place is because, um, like in the rest of Mexico, there is a heavy influence on wild foods. They're, they hunt up there. There's a lot of wild plants and mushrooms that they, that they use up there. The fish is very a huge part of the cuisine in Sonora and Baja and Tamaulipas. And it's also an area of Mexican, Mexican food that isn't really well known. Most... Mexican cookbooks that you see are either from Yucatan or Oaxaca or Mexico City or Michoacan. The giants like, you know, Diana Kennedy never really bothered with the North. So it's not undiscovered, but it's it's lesser known. And it's in a it's a place where I feel I could add something to the conversation. And so I've been working on it for several years now and and now that I'm sort of settled where I am right now, I, I have the opportunity to really work on it. That's awesome. I'm looking forward to it. I love Mexican food. And honestly, I don't think I've made anything out of any of your books that I've regretted making. So you're doing something right. Well, I appreciate uh, it. We test <laughs> yeah. all our recipes, which is unusual in this day and age. Is uh, I don't need to know that. That's <laughs> That'll break my heart. Um, there, there are definitely books that I will not name that I was very excited about coming out because the way they were described and i was so excited the whole concept of the book was perennial foods and it was just Hmm. terrible i was like this is going to be super cool like you're gonna you know that that's my whole thing is how do we get perennial foods seasonal foods all these different things and it was just bad what do you what do you what do you have against annuals 
I have nothing against Daniels. <laughs> I just, I think that they're. Uh, I mean, can we like at least meet in the middle and have like and appreciate the biennial plants? So then, yeah, the, <laughs> but I'm strongly in favor of biennials. Give me that evening primrose. I want it. Um, Rosettes for the win. Yeah, like let's do it. Get There's, those. those... <laughs> that might have been a bit of plant geekery that was so deep that only like seven people in the audience are laughing right now. <laughs> oh yeah, but they'll appreciate the hell out of it. Um, but yeah, like I, I love the idea of perennial foods, or and this idea of like looking to our past to think about how we grow food and how we relate to the food we eat, and. I'm dying for a cookbook that does that, that like does what I just, what I thought that book was going to be this idea of like perennial crops and how do we, how do we create a food system where we can actually have like staples of our diet, not just if 70% grain. Would you consider things like Jerusalem artichokes and American groundnuts perennials? Uh, yeah. Why not? It, because, you know, you do dig them up. I mean, technically they're not, no, but the way they grow, they're like, good luck getting rid of them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, th- and that's, you know, some people might not like sunchokes. I get it, but I do you know I the think secret? It, the secret to not farting explosively from sunchokes? Uh, slow cook. Well, that's one, but uh, keep them in the fridge for a month. Really? Mm-hmm. So right now, well, I guess now we're in December, but like the the, the traditional beginning of, of sunchoke season is is Thanksgiving, and they've just come out of the ground, and so they're completely loaded with inulin. And which virtually nobody, some, there are a few people who are genetic unicorns who can, who can digest inulin, but most people can't. So it gives you literally explosive gas. Like, by the way, fry some sunshine chips for people that are very full of themselves and, you know, and, and they're going to eat them. They're going, they're going to eat them up because they're delicious and they are going to just absolutely blast you. (laughs) It's one of my favorite tricks. But yeah. <laughs> uh, but if you take the same sunchokes and you put them, you know, in a paper bag or a plastic bag in the in your crisper drawer, and you wait a month or two because they, they keep forever in the crisper drawer, that inulin turns to fructose, and and then you can cook them um, largely fart free. Like nothing is 100% fart free with those things, but it's it's not it's not a, a liability anymore. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that that's interesting. I've never tried that. But now I'm gonna. Have you tried uh, using slaked lime with uh, like acorns or any other for? Oh, you mean a nixtamalized air? Yeah, a nixtamalized acorn. I've never been able to do it where it wasn't disgusting. Really? Because it turns it black and it's it's weird. It's just it, like it changes <sighs> the yeah, it changes the flavor profile significantly. But I, I, I don't. know. It's really interesting because I I was doing some research a while back on acorns. I've nixtamalized pumpkins before. What was the purpose of that? Like Just winter for squash? To flavor it? Or... Oh, so no, it's a Mexican thing. So they do this in Sonora where they make um, uh, cubiertos de calabaza. Uh, so it's like these these big chunky squares of, of winter squash. And they nixtamalize it to firm it up so that when you then cook it in pilancillo, like the brown sugar cone, like basically mm-hmm. those cones, brown sugar. So and when they then, when you cook it that, they don't fall to pieces. So you could cook this thing for hours after nixtamalizing it in this sugar syrup and then eat it as like a candy and it still holds its its shape and it's still, you know, you still have some tooth to it. So that's uh that's a traditional use of nixtamalization in of something not corn in Mexico. Yeah, it, it is, I, you know, this really 
interesting curiosity, this whole process of nixtamalizing food. The more you get into it, the more you realize it is much more common. And we think of it as like this corn thing. But to your point, it's used for a number of different foods. You can use it as basically a processing uh, for like basically anything. I, I've never heard of it being with pumpkin, but that's that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still, I don't know a ton about it. I know the, I don't know the traditional uses, but and I know that the guys over at Noma have done quite a bit with it and, and I've read some of the stuff that they've done. So nice. Is that going to be uh, in any of those recipes, any of those techniques? I mean, the cubiertas de calabaza will be because that's a, that's a thing. Like you'd be eating it all. I mean, if you were in Sonora right now, you'd be eating, you'd go to, you'd, you'd see it on the street and you'd eat it. Um, cause it's a, it's a December thing. Nice. Now I want to try it. It does sound pretty good. There will be a recipe for it in in my book because I I've, I've developed one that's you know I've learned from the people who make it and I mean it's obviously not my I didn't invent it but like I've I've written a recipe that works for it. Now how, I don't know the West Coast geography that well, so I'm kind of curious if those um, pinion pines that we were talking about, if any of those nuts make it into any of those recipes, if they go oh, far yeah. enough south. Oh yeah, they pinones. Do. Pin- yeah, pinions are are very they're common in Chihuahua and in Sonora and some of the other states in Mexico. Yeah, very much so. So you think they'll make it into the recipe? Am I going to be uh, climbing some trees this winter or next winter? I mean, you're going to have to go west, but yeah. <laughs> Awesome. That's awesome. Hank, for people that want to follow you on social media, watch all the big fish you catch, uh, <laughs> the de- you, you, you post quite a bit of the ducks that you hunt, which is uh, pretty cool. Where can we find you? So on Instagram, I'm huntgathercook, all one word. And that's my main source of social media. Um, I do have a Facebook group called Hunt Gather Cook, and that's the group is fun. The rest of Facebook is kind of a hate machine, so I, I kind of avoid it. <laughs> I don't know uh, what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then the core of what I do is my website, which is um, you can find it at huntsgathercook.com. And and that is the basically the center of what I do. And that's it's a repository of almost 2,000 recipes for wild foods. And uh, I've been running it since 2007. I've written five cookbooks. And those cookbooks are all available either at your local bookstore or on Amazon, whichever you rather. And so I've, I've got a fair, fairly decent footprint. Um, I, I don't know if I'm going to do my podcast again because uh, I'm kind of in transition, but uh, you can definitely find me. I'm pretty much on Instagram on a daily basis. So you and I, and I try to answer questions if people ask them of me. Yeah, you... I know I said this before, but your books have been wildly helpful. Cooking rabbit, cooking fish, duck, as I said, is one of the meats that I struggled with. And then your technique was a little bit different than what I've seen elsewhere, but it worked for me. So you you figured something out that no one else could figure out for me. (laughs) So Hank, thanks so much. This has been really great. Um, Been super happy to finally get you on and uh, I'm looking forward to that book coming out. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's probably going to be a little bit because um, I want to make sure I have all my uh, I's dotted and T's crossed before I do that. No, I want you to put it out. Don't test any of the recipes. Like, <laughs> come on. Now that I know that's the method, like we let's we we got to crank that number up. Let's get that thing out there. Yeah. <laughs>